Lord, help me to be crystal clear, unambiguous, straightforward, bold, and yet, Lord, sweet and winsome, compelling and very practical. That's asking, Lord, for a miracle because it does not lie within natural gifts to do these things. But we ask you to bless the reading and the proclamation of your word and later the eating of your word for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want us to notice a couple of things. First is the name Antipas. If you break it down, remember that Greek was the language of the Roman Empire until later on. In the time of Jesus, in the first century, Latin was not the language of the Roman Empire. Antipas is a Greek name, and it means against everybody. <laughs> so, but I don't think that that's the thing here. Antipas is actually somewhat of a common name. In fact, the Herod who put Jesus on trial, or who passed the buck, the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded, was Herod Antipas. So it's not an uncommon name. And I'm not sure there's symbolism in it, but he was a martyr there in Pergamum. But the thing I want you to look at in particular is the reference to the sharp double-edged sword that we see in verse 12. And that takes us back to chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we're told there on page 1913, uh, in verse 16, Revelation 1:16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. And so I want you to turn with me to the left, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Hebrews, chapter 4, where we see something about God's Word. So a, a sword coming out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus, this is page 1866, page 1866, and we want to look here at verse 12, Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So think about it for a moment. What is the symbolism of Revelation 1 and Revelation 2 at that point? It is the Word of the Lord, the Word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to understand when Paul speaks about the, the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6, one of those is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The most important thing is God's Word. And God, as we're told in the, in the catechisms and in the confession of faith, God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of grace. So I want to think about the importance of God's Word as it's preached. What is it? You should view my preaching as Christ Himself talking to you. I don't say that with arrogance. I believe that I'm saying it with humility. In fact, I say it in a sense, with fear and trembling. I remember one of my elders years ago came up to me after church and he said, Bob, you always look so nervous before you preach. And I said, his name was Ham. I said, Ham, 
It's because I am nervous. And he said, well, you've been speaking so many years, you, you don't have stage fright. I said, no, sir, I, I don't. I said, but I'm afraid to get in the pulpit. It's an awesome responsibility to open the scriptures to explain it and to apply it. That's what preaching is. Preaching is opening the scriptures, explaining the scriptures, and applying it. It's awesome. Why? Because God makes the preaching of the word the most important of all the means of grace. What do we mean by a means of grace? Well, we have... We have two means of grace set before us today. In fact, if you look at our sanctuary, we have three means of grace set up here. One is baptism. The other is the Lord's Supper. And the other is preaching from the Bible. What is a means of grace? It's simply a tool to connect with Jesus. A means of grace. A tool to connect with Jesus. Or an instrument that God uses to make us more like Jesus. And so he makes the proclamation of the word to be very effective. Now, for it to be effective, I've got to have my heart right with God before I preach. And I say this, like you, sometimes I'm reluctant to confess my sin to God. Because the moment I confess my sin to God, I know I've got to say, okay, Lord, I'm done with that. I'm turning back to you. And we all sin every day. And we're not always aware when we sin. But for me to preach is to go through a revival service every single Sunday morning. To examine my heart in a deeper way, in a more soul-searching way than I do on any other day. Because... It is a fearful thing for me to stand before God's people and open this book, declare what it says, and then, by the grace of the Spirit, to try to apply it to people's lives in such a way that they repent and they turn to the Lord Jesus. If they've never done that before, that they would do it for the very first time. If they're Christians, that they would do what I'm doing, which is to search my heart. If there's sin, confess it and ask God for cleansing and then believe the gospel. But notice what he says about the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing of soul and spirit. Is the soul different from the spirit? The answer to that is yes and no. Yes and no. Soul and spirit are used synonymously in Scripture and interchangeably. We could speak of the inner part of a human being that survives death as either the soul or the spirit. Yet there is enough of a distinction there that they're not exactly the same in meaning. Soul is the inner part of man more related to the human mind and more related to this earth. Whereas the Spirit is much more related to the Holy Spirit and to God's work in us that way. So soul and spirit can be divided. They are distinct. Then we think of the outer man, the human body. And we can divide between the joints and the marrow. And then it says that Scripture, and God does bless the reading of Scripture, 
How often have you been reading the Bible and discovered sin? It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. But I'm going to say that God makes the proclamation of his word, the preaching that you hear when you're assembled with other believers as they are praying. There's a dynamic at work between the people of God and the preacher. As people say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me. You know, I think there are a lot of people that just go to churches and if they've ever been saved, they don't come with an anticipation that God's going to say something to them, that he's going to speak to them, that he's going to show them something. I want you to expect that God is going to show you something this morning and pray with that anticipation. If you do, he will. And it is, he tells us here, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You can't know people. You can't really discern who people are. People will fool you. They really will fool you. But you know who is never fooled? The Lord. And you know the tool that God uses to keep you from looking in the mirror and saying, Oh, what a good boy I am. He uses his word. He uses his word, particularly the word as it's spoken. Now he says something else here that's interesting. If we look at verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. As we read that verse, we're struck with the Greek words behind it that take us to the gladiatorial games. What's in view? The view that's here is the gladiatorial games where two people would fight each other in the games. One would win and the other would lose. And in those days, it wasn't like uh, a famous boxer defeating another boxer. And the guy went off hurting and wounding, wounded and needing a, a massage and a lot of painkillers. In those days, one person is on the ground and the other is standing over him. And the picture is that he has his head back, his neck up, and the sword is there. And then the gladiator looks up to the authorities. What should I do? Because the authorities gave to the one gladiator the authority to take human life. And that person could be a governor. That person could be a king. Or it could be the Roman emperor. And he either told him to go ahead and show mercy or to kill him. Let me say this. That's the word picture in verse 13. If we are really under the power and authority of God's word as it's proclaimed, we should be exposed to the point that it is going to change us. And we will find God's mercy. And I'll say this. Going back to a sermon series I did in August of 2019 out of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The picture is that God's word does not change everybody. It is a savor of life unto life, but also of death unto death. So there we are, laid bare by God's Word. And so as we think of these tools for holiness, tools for sanctification, tools to help us become more like Jesus, 
The most important of those tools is the proclamation of the Word of God. And pray for me and pray for yourself that God's Word would profit you because as it profits us, we experience change. We experience an infusion of grace. Even if we don't feel it, we experience it. Now, I want us to go back to Revelation for a moment. Revelation chapter 2. And we read these words. He goes down at the end and he says, in verse 17 of page 1915, Revelation 2.17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Notice that Jesus promises to wage war with the people in the church of Pergamum, but not with the believers. Notice what he says if you go up a bit bit in verse 16. Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You can be in a church that is moderately apostate and still be blessed of God. Think of that for a moment. And he says here to the individual believer in the church in Pergamon, if you overcome, I'll give you some of the hidden manna. Turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, where Jesus tells us about the meaning of the manna. And if you think about the Old Testament, you know that God had Israel preserve in a jar some of the manna and to place it in the Ark of the Covenant, the hidden manna. But let's look at this. And uh, John chapter 6, and that's page 1657, 1657. And listen to what Jesus says, or rather what the people say to Jesus in verse 30, John 6, 30. So they ask him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now notice what they say in verse 31. Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What's Jesus telling us? The real meaning of the manna in the wilderness is that it pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who says... In the very next verse of verse 35, in response to their comment, Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. I want you to understand that in the Old Testament, Christ is present by the means of the Holy Spirit. He's present in the form of the manna. And I want to say that in the bread that we eat and the wine that we drink, Christ is present by the Holy Spirit. How is he present? I don't know, but he is present. I want to say that the Presbyterian Church is like the Church of England. 
And that is, we believe in the real presence of Christ. In the preaching. In the bread. And in the wine. And in very similar ways. Christ is in heaven. When we gather together with God's people to worship Him, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ already. And He feeds us with Himself. How? Someone has said, well, it's spiritual. It is spiritual, not in the sense of a figure of speech, but in the sense of the work of the Holy Spirit. By means of the Holy Spirit, you are encountering the risen Christ this morning in the proclamation of His Word. And by His Spirit, you will encounter the risen Christ in the bread and in the wine. How? Is it a tongue and stomach way? Can you masticate and chew Christ's flesh? No. Nevertheless, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is real and really present in these ordinances we have to do with Jesus. And so Jesus can say in verse 35 regarding the manna, I am the bread of life. Now what does it mean to eat Christ in the supper? Look at what he says. In the very next sentence of verse 35. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. You know what it is to eat and drink Christ in the, in the Lord's Supper? It's to come to him and it's to believe in him. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with our heart. We come to Him. See, the important things about, thing about worship and the means of grace is to see them as a pathway to communion or fellowship or encountering the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is really present at Trinity Presbyterian Church this morning. He's present in the proclamation of the Word as His Word, sharper than any two-edged sword. And He's present in the hidden manna. He's present in the bread. Not in the bread as such, but in the act of participating in the Lord's Supper. He's really here, really present. And He wants you to draw, He wants to draw you to Himself. Many people come to church and in, all over the country and are never profited because they have no anticipation that they're about to come into the presence of the risen Christ who's really, truly present in his church where the people are God are gathered. And he says there, He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And now look down, he says in verse 36, But as I told you, you've seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Think of that for a moment. Do you remember the other thing that the overcomer of the church in Pergamon gets? He gets to partake of the hidden manna. He also is given the white stone. The white stone. Do you know that people had two stones and they could, they could vote on a conviction or a rejection with a black stone and on an acceptance and a forgiveness and approval with a white stone. St. Paul uses that illustration to say that when St. Stephen was being martyred, 
uh, he was there holding the garments. And that when Christians were going to be put to death, he cast the black stone. The white stone says, I elect you. I vote for you. The white stone says that. And let me say something else. The white stone is not just like, well, there are two stones here, and I'm going to either put a black stone on the table or a white stone on the table. I want you to see this. Your stone has your name engraved on it. And it's a secret name. It's God's pet name for you. What I want you to see is, if you look at verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Understand then as you take the Lord's Supper this morning, That Christ has voted for you. He's cast the white stone. But he hasn't just done it as a one-time act. He's done it as a permanent act. Your name is written on that pro-life stone. It is. Him who comes to me, I will never cast out. Notice verse 37. It's an act of sovereign grace. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. If you look down at verse 44 at the bottom of the page, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, let's remember this. It is God's initiative, not ours, that we encounter the living God in worship. And we encounter the living God only by sovereign grace. No one can come to me. No one is able to come to me except the Father who sent me draws him. Pray for all who are here today that God would draw them sovereignly and effectually to Christ. And then remember this blessed truth. All that the Father gives me, not some, all that the Father gives me, will come to me, and him who comes to me, I will never cast it, never reject the security of the believer. And the security of the believer is brought home to us profoundly in the means of grace. Christ is present in this church, in the prayers of all people, in the fellowship with one another, in the preaching of the word. And in the Lord's Supper, Christ is present. Would you encounter the living Christ today? And would you pray with me that everyone who is here today will encounter the living Christ in such a way that we go out of here assured that we've got that white stone. And it's got our names individually, God's secret pet name for us, engraved on it. If God be for us, who can be against us? May we pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of attending to the means of grace. We live in an era, Lord, when so many people have grown in the habit of no longer assembling together. Lord, there were real health reasons for that. I thank you, Lord, that people have begun to come back. And I pray that you would bless. For there's just nothing like being in the presence with your people to partake of the means of grace.
the tools for holiness, the pathways to communion with you. May it be so in this word that's been proclaimed and in this visible, tangible word of God, the Lord's Supper, for Jesus' sake, amen.